0: are not the results of mass only... You may wish to adjust the dial. You are currently tuned into... The Wrong Station. Well, most of the folks in that camp were some kind of squarehead or another, so I never took it too serious when they talked about a devil that lived in that woods. Always thought it was just some squarehead superstition that they brought with them from the old country. Well, and maybe it was something they brought with them, but sure shit weren't no superstition. Now, I'd been in that camp for about six months, and Jack had been there for about four, and me and him were tight, beings how we was the only ones at the camp which spoke more as a few words of anything other than squarehead or different square head. So of course, it was me and him together what found the Frenchman floating face down in that swamp. And we thought for sure he was dead, way that he was floating there. But when we got him with the long sticks, he started to gaspin' and, and grab for the stick and lettin's us pull him to shore where he doubled down coughing in a pukin' water and... Reason for air and I ain't never seen that much water come out of a man it was just wretch after wretch all the water so clean and pure looking you could have sworn you could drink it except if it wasn't for the smell well he was all dressed in furs and stuff and when he spoke his mouth it was all just French coming out and not a word of English so then we pegged him for a cur de bois which was getting to be strange upon that time, with the continent being settled, instead of just used for fur trading. But it weren't unheard of, and we were out far in the bush, so we didn't think too much nothing about it. Well, that water was cold, up that as far north as he was. It don't matter the time of year, the water gets cold so fast as we could. We brung him back to the camp cause his teeth was chattering and he was shaking and if we didn't get him a fire and some blankets then it wasn't gonna make no difference what we dragged him out of the pool but that he wasn't gonna make it. So we got him back there, got him some fire and blankets and soup and we starts looking around the camp for someone who speaks francais but try as hard as we might we can't even luck a person in the place who speaks anglais so it just comes down to us to find out who the fuck he is and how he got to be in that pool. Now Jack, Jack we're lucky enough to spend about a year living up in Montreal. And so he's got a bit, just a real little bit, just what they call a smattin' of it, a French. So he starts asking the guys best he can. And as he's shivering, still dripping cold by the fire, he tells us that his name's Jean... And that he comes from Quebec, and that he was traveling with something called the Expedition de Martin, and we, mostly by my the thing, try and ask him where's the de Martin expedition now, and he says, "You saw more," which Jack tells me he thinks means that they're dead. Well, I guess we figured that the case anyway from the way he'd been laying in a pool in the swamp that branched off from the Austakeny Rapids, but still sent a shiver down our spines. Then after that, the Frenchman added the word gesper. So that's you'll sound more j'espère. but Jack didn't know what that one translated into. And after that, remember, he's just come in half drowned, half frozen, no jacket, no food, not tent, no nothing, he stands up and goddammit, he tries to leave. Well, Jack and me, we try and stop him, but he goes wild, starts shouting at us in French, too fast for poor Jack to keep up, way too fast, and then he switches to English. I go, I go, he says. No safe, I go and he pushes his way past us and out into the rain but he's still too weak to go any place so halfway across the camp he faints and his ankle swerves in the mud and he puts down awkward on his left arm breaking it so much for that we put him back into bed and when he comes to we put a dose of whiskey in him and send him off to sleep well that night starts to fall and there's an eerie sense about the camp one of the square heads, a fin, he comes up to us, and he speaks a bit more English than the rest of them, and he tells us our Frenchman's unlucky, and that we'd be best to send him on his way. And I was raised a Christian, but I wasn't raised no good Christian, so I say I got no interest in charity, and soon as he's done upon, able to go, I'll be the first to send him on his way. And the Finn says, he says to me, up in the part of the country where he came from, up in the north... They have already sent him out to meet what was going to meet him in the trees. Well, I done told him he wanted to make a circumstance out of it. I was willing to stake my claim on the other side of it. Well, he was a rough man in his own way, but that nose of his had never been broke before, and mine had, had half a dozen of times, and I think that fact set in on him how unworth it that whole affair was to him. So he sulked off, spent the rest of his evening whittling out crosses and other symbols i never seen before, some Finnick, Northmanish unchristian and Christian origin, out of the loose bits of black spruce and tamarack wood we got scattered around the camp. Sure, and I'd faced him down, but also it'd have been a part of myself that I'd been facing down in that conversation, since I'd got a case of the shivers round my call that evening, same as anyone in that woodland camp. See, there was a bad breeze blowing, and it had come off the swamp wherein we'd pulled John out of, and time is just knowin'. someone's got a superstition enough to give it a catch on to you, and even before that fin came up to me, I'd been wondering maybe if we shouldn't have left that dead man to the grip of the black pool what had him. Well, shit, I'd cast my choice, and my shit-heart father hadn't raised no man-a-half measures fuck if I'd allow myself scared by some half-savage from the poleward tundras. So I acted like I couldn't feel that bad wet wind, that I couldn't smell that raw meat and excrement smell coming in off the swamp, that I couldn't hear no offness in the sound of the trees, and I sat down in front of my tent and I made my fucking supper. And though it tasted like rotted fingers in my mouth, I smacked my lips and hummed to myself like I had not cares in the world save how goddamn fulfilling that meal was. It was about an hour after dark we started hearing the voice from the woods. One of the Norways was the first to hear it. Finns had already all gone to their tents, hung charms over the flaps. First thing I know, though, one of the Norways by the edge of the camp sits bolt upright and stands and steps back, almost stumbling the fire, looking back out in those darkly woodlands. The others ask him what's going on, and he calls out into the trees, but he gets no answer, and then he calls out again, and this time his voice has got a crack and a squeak in it. But again, he gets no answer that I can hear. And then he and the other Norways get to talking fast and serious in their own tongue, and then as a group, they all make as a group to the one tent in the middle of the camp. And they light a couple more fires, and one of them breaks out a Lutheran Bible and starts to read it in a low voice. And that smell, that meat scent from off the swamp, it got stronger. And you ain't got used to it either, not like most bad smells. And when I stand up and get to the edge of the camp, I hear what that Norway must have heard. It's a voice out in the trees, and it's a voice sounds like cold, bad feel of a cankerous tongue rooting round the inside of your ear canal. And you're trying to make out what's being said, but you can't quite get your head around the words. So you step a bit further into the woods trying to make them out, and then before you realize you've already stepped yourself under the trees and the firelight's got dimmed around you. So I five-timed it back to the center of the camp, and now I'm falling to look at cool and calm for the square heads, because damn, god damn, there's something bad happening in the woods. And that is when the first animal died. Felt as much as heard the thump by my foot, when I looked down and saw a little nighttime bird falling from the sky and planted itself in the wet leaves and the mud. And just when I was processing that... One of the dogs at one of the fins burst loose from his cord and he ran himself headfirst and yelping into the fire, and from the moment he passed himself in the flames he made no noise and shriveled up there and silent. There was pigs and chickens in the camp as well, and the pigs began to squeal and were thrashing themselves around the pen, but the chickens stayed quiet and just flung themselves to get crushed under the hoofs of the scrambling pigs. That's when he showed up. This big old silence descended on the camp. Even the sound of the fire came all muted, and it felt to me like a bolt of cotton had been bound to my mouth and chin, and that it wasn't permitting me to speak. Then out of the woods came the mutters. That same mutters what I'd heard on the outskirts of the camp, but what till now had been kept at bay by the light of the campfires. By now these fires was dimming down and burning low and red, same as if someone lowered a bell jar over em, and they'd burn off all the air inside, only there was something else sustaining them in there, but only just. In the campfire closest to me, the flames died down enough that the smoky ribs of that dog were thrusting out of it into the night air, and into that low red light and cloud of mummerings in the clearing and step that man. And I can't describe them well to you, either because that light in that clearing was so dim, or else cause something in my brains keeps me from holding on too tight to the memories. But I can tell you this, he was a man with no regular kind of eyes. He had no sockets, like it was that the part of his face where the eyes should be was flush with the brow and the cheekbones, like they'd been fiddled up and fiddled in with a liquid and it had set leaving it flat, geometric flat, and it seemed to me that what it had been filled in with was a kind of matte red stone, couldn't tell you what type it was, I don't know too much about the kinds of rocks, and this man, this man with no goodly made kind of eyes, he said, come on out, and everybody knew who he was speaking to, he was speaking to the Frenchman inside the tent, speaking to Jean. And everybody knew that John was awake, and that he was listening to this, and that there was no way out of it for the poor bastard, but that they had no blame of him for not coming out. And then the man with the red stone eyes said again, Come on out, or else it's the first one. And still there was no movement from inside the tent. And the man with the flat stone eyes said, All right, here's the first one. And then he looked at one of the Swedes and he said, You come over. And the Swede hesitated, and he looked from side to side at the ones on both sides of him. And then, cautious-like, he takes a half-step over, and then another step, and we're all watching him thinking, No, no, as he makes his approach. And soon as he's in reach, the man with the flat red eyes takes him by the top of the head with one hand, And he pinches off a fistful of scalp and he throws it to the ground. And it should have made a wet noise. And the Swede should have screamed, only we're all still in that big cotton hush of silence. After that, bored-like, the man with the flat red eyes uses his finger and his thumb to peel off strips of skin from the head of the Swede, like skin from a Chinese apple. And after that when the Swede's head is all exposed, muscle and naked, staring eyeballs in a frilly collar of skin just like a jester's ruffle around his neck. Then the flat-eyes man lets him fall to the ground, and he says, That's the first one. Now come on out. And still, there's no movement inside the tent, so the red-eyed man says, Alright then, then here's the second one. And a moment after that, the tent flat moves, and we all have a hope that it's Jean turning himself over to whatever that man was he'd brought on himself. But it wasn't Jean. It was Jack. And he walks over to the stone-eyed man. And the stone-eyed man reaches with the thumb and forefinger between the buttons of his shirt, and he pinches at the navel, and he pulls and as he pulls a red wet string comes out with its end tween his finger and his thumb. And Jack My Jack, my boy, he makes this noise less a gasp than a than a stoppin' of the air, and he looks surprised, and then that bad man starts to keep on pulling at that red wet string, and he pulls until he's just got handfuls and handfuls of the stuff and Jack's looking paler and paler as he's getting his insides unraveled like a sweater by a single thread and by a moment and a half later he's done and pale and collapses there next to the Swede who hateful though it is to say is still breathing through his unlipped teeth at this point point. and after that that devil man says come on out or else it's the third one and still, there's no motion from that tent. And the red-eyed man says, All right, then. It's the third one. Because he wanted that Frenchman. See, he wanted him, but he wanted him to come out of his own free say-so. But that third one he chose, that third one was me. And when the man with the red eyes called me over to him, I got filled with a strange sense of curiosity. Like... What would it be like to go over there? I wonder what it's like. It might be nice to go over there and see what this man has to say. Maybe it'll be something good. And so over I went, and when I got real close, I noticed something strange about the man. See, on each of his eyes, there was a little circle scratches, like someone tried to carve in a pupil and irises, but eventually given up on it either cause it wasn't working or cause they lost interest in having those things be on there. And the man puts his hand on my face, and I can feel the flesh there getting all soft and pliant like warm beeswax. And I felt the same thing happen into the bone, and it hurts, a kinda deep down wrongness pain that I've never felt the same of in a lifetime full of wrongness and pain. And just then... That's when the tent opens up, and out walks Jean, and he just looks so tired. Tireder than anyone I've ever seen. And he says something in French, but we all get the gist. And the gist is, Alright, I'll go with you, And just like that, it's all over, and they're both gone. And the fires are normal except for the dog's bones in one of them. And the camp's normal except for the bodies of Jack and the Swede. And the animals are normal, except for that the pigs are feasting themselves on dead chickens' meat. And I'm normal, except for that my face is all warped up the same way you see me now, and that there's a hollow in me from seeing Jack dead like that how he was. Well, we all left that next morning, and the explanation we gave to everyone that asked was that it was an attack by Braves in the Jack Saw Nation and I bet a fair few of them paid the price for that which wasn't just for them to have paid. And a couple years after that, I started to look into the Demartan expedition, and it turned out that the whole group of them had disappeared about 70 years earlier. Well, John didn't look like any 90-year-old man to me, but I guess it doesn't matter now. As his folks would say, you'll aim more. J'espère. The Wrong Station is created and produced by Alexander Saxton and Anthony Battello, Featuring Anthony Botello. With music composed by Alon Zitrin and original artwork by Jenny Henderson, This week's episode, Come On Out, was written by Alexander Saxton. We at The Wrong Station would like to thank you for listening to our first season. You can continue to support us by subscribing on iTunes or Google Play Music, following us on social media, and sharing with your podcast and or horror-loving friends. You can continue to send your burning questions to thewrongstation at gmail.com. And have no fear, The Wrong Station will return. So until then, thank you for listening.